This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled, That Which Costs Me Nothing, and it comes from 2 Samuel 24, 1-25. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talking could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with your tax-deductible gift. So why don't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone or mail us your gift to Word Talking. P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13:16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com. Catch us wherever you consume your podcast. We're there too, whether that's Apple or Spotify or Google or Amazon. Wherever you listen to your podcast, we're there too. Just search for WMER, Radio Bible Class with no spaces between Radio Bible Class. Hopefully today we finish up chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, and that will wrap up our study in 1 and 2 Samuel. And if you were to go to the top of your Bible, if you were to turn to chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, look at the very top, there should be a heading, and it probably says David's senses. But there was a verse in here right towards the bottom that stood out to me, and it spoke to me, and we'll get to it as we go through this lesson. And that's why I titled it, That Which Costs Me Nothing. Most of the sermons on this chapter will probably be titled David's Census. And we all know what a census is. A census is where you take an official count of the population. And the Bible tells us that David did this and that it was a sin before the Lord. And that puzzles a lot of people because here we see David took a census and it caused a sin, a sin before the Lord. But we do it every 10 years. Also, to me, it's interesting that we come to this chapter and we talk about a census right in this Christmas season. Remember, baby Jesus was born because of a census. Anyway, all this talking about census remind me of a joke. It's about little Becky. Little Becky opened the door when a census taker came by and knocked on it. And she told the census taker that her daddy was a doctor and he wasn't home because he was performing an appendectomy. She said, my, my, Becky, that is such a big word for such a young girl. Do you know what that means? She says, sure do. It means $3,000, and that doesn't include the anesthesiologist. But back to our topic, and we are going to talk about the census, but that's one piece of it. I definitely want to wrap up, though, that which costs me nothing. And with that said, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. We'll start in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, 
Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Bathsheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the kings were prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the armies. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Arara and from the city that is the middle of the valley to, towards Gad and on to Jazar. They came up to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came into Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon. And they came from the fortress of Tyre to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave a sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. And it was 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were half a million. Well, my first point from this census that David has Joab take is a sin was committed. Now, there is some controversy in this very first part of chapter 24, but I want to clear that up, and I'm going to give you my perspective on it. If you remember in verse 1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and number Israel and Judah. Now, if God told him to go and number Israel and Judah, then why was it a sin? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. As I dug around trying to find the answer to this question, what I really found is there is a lot in this chapter that is left unexplained. So to you and I, what this really means is that we just have to be careful how we interpret this because we don't have a clear, definite answer. Now, several commentators give us some answers about this. And also we have to remember that this is an epilogue. So this isn't in a timeline, but this is happening when David uh, has probably had several great wins. He may be getting ready for battle. And so therefore he's, he wants to know how many people he has before he goes into war. But what we can assume based on the Bible is that the Lord is angry at the nation of Israel because of their misdeeds. And to take it one step further, they haven't been punished for these deeds. Now, we do know based on the commentators that this happens after Absalom has made a run for the throne and then Sheba. There was no punishment for what went on. So maybe the Lord is intending to punish them for that. And you might go, well, Tim, why would the Lord punish them for that? Remember that David was the only one appointed by the prophet. So Absalom was the people's choice, and that would have been choosing a local God over the one true God. And the same thing with Sheba. But as we continue in verse 1, we see that it says that the Lord incited David against them, saying, go and number Israel and Judah. Some of you may know this, but this is a parallel to what goes on in 1 Chronicles 21. And so if we look there, we read that then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. This is a point where some people point at and say that the Bible contradicts itself. Here we see that God incited David to go do this. And now in 1 Chronicles, we see that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number. So is this an error in the Bible? So the answer to that question is no, because the Bible contains no errors. The other question may be, 
then who did this? Well, actually, the answer could be both. Now, remember, God is sovereign over all things, even over the actions of Satan. The way to understand these two texts and how they conflict is that God was angry with Israel. We've already established that. So he incited David to number Israel by the means of Satan's temptation. Now, he didn't tempt David. Remember, we've talked and studied about that, that God doesn't tempt us, that Satan does. But God is sovereign. He allows Satan to tempt David. And this explains and makes logical sense of why this would be a sin. Satan tempted David for either ego reasons or for trusting in himself versus leaning on God. But he listened to Satan and he reacted to that temptation. And now there is going to be a consequence for this sin. The other thing I want you to see is in verse 3 that once David goes to Joab and tells him what to do, and Joab's his right-hand man, remember, that Joab says, well, look, may you see the growth of a hundred times of the people, but don't do this. Why are you doing this? Joab's trying to stop him. And again, we can learn from this that those that are around us sometimes can speak reason to us when we start to give in to temptation. But not only was it Joab, look at verse 4. It says that the king's word prevailed against Joab, who I told you just tried to tell David no, but also the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders are overridden by the king, even though they're all telling him, no, this isn't a good thing. So what do they do? They go and they number the people. And we come back with a number of 800,000 valiant men who can draw the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. So roughly for the nation of Israel, we have 1.3 million men. And now as we move forward, we'll see because a sin was committed, a judgment needs to be delivered. And even before I pick back up in verse 10, we need to understand that at any time there is sin, God judges sin. God will judge sin. And unless we ask for forgiveness before he judges us and gives us his mercy, we will be judged against that sin. Now look back at verse 10 with me real quick. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad and David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer to you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months from the foe who will pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for the mercy is great. But let me not fall in the hands of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working the destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what had they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. 
So in verse 10, David feels convicted for his sin against the Lord. We see that David's heart was struck, is what it says, because he had numbered the people. David realized that he had sinned, and he tells that. He says to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. It was only after David recognized and confessed his sin that the Lord sent the prophet Gad to David. The Lord gave David three options when Gad showed up, though. He said, one, you can choose three years of famine, or two, you can choose three months of fleeing from your enemy, or three, you can have three days of pestilence. And we saw in verse 15 that David had chose option number three. Because it says in verse 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men died. That means one out of 20 men died. David knew that the Lord God Almighty was mercy. He said, I don't want to be at the have the mercy of the man's hand. I don't have to beg for food and pay a price because of a famine. I don't have to run for my life. Let me choose the Lord because he's a merciful God. He knew Deuteronomy 4.31, which says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. In Deuteronomy 7.9, it says, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps the covenant and mercy for thousands of generations with those who love him and keep his commandment. And David knew this. Because he wrote in Psalms 25.10 that all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keeps his covenant and his testimony. David comes to God and says, I've sinned. I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me and my father's house. What we see here is a true leader. We see someone that is owning what they have done. They own it. He's saying, these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me. David was thinking like a shepherd. What David understood is the people of Israel, the flock of God that he was put over. He was the shepherd of the people of Israel. They were dying and he begged for God's mercy that the Lord's judgment would fall on him instead of the people. We see in verse 16 that God says, it is enough. Now stay your hand is what he says to the angel. And we need to remember that David's plea for mercy was not some wishful thinking. He knew God. Was it not David who had experienced the mercy of God after his horrendous sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite? He wrote in Psalms 51.1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David's experience with God has taught him through his life that he had the right to plead for God's mercy, and he does it. David knows that God's mercy is kinder and gentler than any disaster that could ever come his way. And that really takes me to my third point. So for you note takers, the first one was a sin was committed. The second one, judgment was given for the sin. And now mercy is shown. What we need to learn about mercy from God, we need to be like David. Sadly, too many of us aren't like David. We tend to look upon the mercy of God as a divine exception rather than his divine character. I can remember growing up and we would hope for the mercy and would expect a divine miracle to happen when we would get in trouble. Because my dad, there was a few things we were scared of. And one of them was my dad. And my dad would take and teach us through the punishment of a belt. And there were many a times we would sit in the back of the car after we got in trouble and try to be quiet. And hopefully that he would forget and give us mercy. See, that is a divine exception. 
But what I want you to understand today is that God has a divine character, and his character is a mercy. He knew, God is all-knowing, he knew that we were going to sin. The Bible tells us we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. God knows that. Yet he sent his son so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God showed mercy so that we don't have to face the sin and the wrath that we will face if we don't accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. To talk about the wrath of God today makes many people queasy. They don't like to talk about it. They're not comfortable talking about it. But we can't turn away from the prominent theme through the Bible that there is a wrath of God. But the problem is when we hear about the wrath of God, we think about anger. We think about how we respond. We think about God's anger being our anger. You think about someone damaging your property or the value of your property. We think about someone hurting your child and the anger that comes through that. You think about something that happens at work and the anger you get because of that. Someone taking uh, money from you, stealing from you. The anger that comes from that. We're all capable of anger about something. And God has an anger, but it's pure. See, the wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up like our anger flares up. God doesn't have the temper tantrums we have. But God does not like sin and his anger is pure. And so when the Bible's talking about God's anger, it is a way of describing his absolute anger against all wrong, him coming to set matters right. And that's what is going on right here over this census. God is making matters right. The last thing I'll say real quick, because I do have to move on, is that there are people that claim in the Old Testament that God is entirely angry. He's vengeful. He's judgmental. And this is really not true. In the book of The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins describes the God in the Old Testament as the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a homophobic, racist bully that is in the Old Testament. That's not God, but that's how sometimes we think about God. Some of us don't think he's too far off when we read the Old Testament. Yes, God is judgmental in the Old Testament, but it's best understood when we understand his character of his mercy. We don't think about God's mercy in the Old Testament. But if you go all the way back to Genesis, right there in Genesis 3.21, where it's the Lord God made for the man and his wife garments of skin with which he clothed them. Adam and Eve are sitting here guilt-ridden, ashamed, and ashamed of their nakedness. But God clothes them and he shows them mercy, even though he does judge them. We slide right by God made garments for them. Another example of mercy is in Noah. We're still in Genesis, right? Noah is told to tell people about what God's going to do about the flood. God shows mercy before he judges them. What about in Exodus? Exodus 33, Moses pleads with God to show his glory. God responds to the request, but he doesn't put Moses at risk. He hides him in the cliff so that as he passes by, he doesn't die for seeing the Lord. We get it all wrong. We think that the Old Testament God is the way it was described, but it's not. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ, and the God of the New Testament is Jesus Christ. 
And they are the same, and they show mercy and kindness. Even though the Bible describes God sometimes about his wrath and his anger. I'm running out of time, so let me move on. We've seen that a sin was committed, judgment for the sin was given, and mercy was shown. But now I want to show you the atonement that was paid. I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read the last five verses. I will highlight a couple of them. But I'll tell you real quick. What happens is Gad comes back to David and he says, Go down to a rune and buy the threshing floor where the angel was that you saw. And buy that threshing floor and build an altar to God and put an end to this disaster. And so when he goes down to Arun, Arun says, no, I'll give it to you. Here's some oxen. You can use the wood that's used for their yoke to be the fire. Kill the oxen and sacrifice that. Build the land. I'm giving it to you, O king. Anything you need of mine, you can have. But I do want to read this verse. Verse 24. But the king said to Arun, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer it burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered a burnt offering, a peace offering. So the Lord responded to the plea of the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Now what you may not know is the spot at which that this angel was passing down judgment is at Mount Moriah. Now Mount Moriah may sound familiar to you. That is the place where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac, his beloved son. And now, more than a thousand years later, the angel of the Lord again stopped the killing from the very same spot on Mount Moriah that David offered his life for his people. Now, David, of course, did not die at that time. But later, his son Solomon builds the temple on this very spot that he buys from Arun, and thousands of thousands of animals will get sacrificed right here to atone for the sins of the people. I don't have time to go into it, but you can turn to 2 Chronicles 3.1 and you can read about Solomon building the house of the Lord on Mount Moriah. But as I said, David goes to a room. He wanted to give an offering to God and room says, hey man, I've got this oxen and this, this threshing instrument and it's all yours. It's free. You don't need to pay me. But David doesn't want the free road. He doesn't want to take free stuff. David says, I'll buy it from you because I don't want to offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. Now, what I want you to understand today is that our salvation is free. It doesn't cost us anything. Matter of fact, Ephesians is very clear on that. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Romans 11.6 says, If by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. What Paul is saying there is that it is by grace. It's not by works. Now, let me tell you, I say this time and time again. When we are truly saved, it changes our heart and the works are produced because of our grace and our salvation. But we don't get our salvation. It is free. It's not by works. The grace of God is free. Salvation is free. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just believe. There are denominations that call that cheap grace. But I don't know how else you can do it. The Bible says what it says. But I'm going to go back to that verse 24 because I love the heart of David here. He says, I want this to cost. David understands that 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 we love, we don't mind. We, we don't look at the cost. It's not about the cost. It's about just the gift. 
And that's what this offering is about. David giving a gift back to God for his mercy that he's shown. It's an offering of peace back to God. There's someone listening to me that's probably going, Tim, why does it have to cost? Well, the truth is it didn't have to cost. He could have easily told Arun, I'll take all that, done the sacrifice, and it would have been good. David wasn't doing this because he was trying to earn God's affection and his mercy. God had already shown his mercy. He wasn't trying to earn something. He was doing it out of a love. He wanted what was worthy and best. He wanted to give his first fruits. He wanted God to see that this meant something and it was sacrificial. David wanted to send the signal that this was about majesty. This was about respect. This was about honor. This was about dignity for the deity that had shown mercy to him. And because of this act, we can see David's love for God. And we look at David right here. It isn't about David. David isn't going around, look what I did. I bought this. No, David quickly says, I want it to be sacrificial for me. I love that David didn't take the easy route. He wanted it to cost him something. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't selfish. It was selfless. I open every lesson with a scripture verse, Hebrews 13, 16. What does it say? Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, God is pleased by seeing us give a sacrificial offering. And just as David gave an offering that was an atonement for the sin that was that happened, it was paid through the atonement of blood of those animals and God was pleased with it. Our sin has to have atonement. And Jesus Christ went to the cross and he paid that atonement. Our sin has been paid in full. All we have to do is believe on him and receive him as Lord of our life. My question for you today is, have you let Jesus atone for your sins? Have you accepted him? Have you said, I am lost, I'm a sinner, and I need him? Have you asked for forgiveness of your sins and believed on the atonement that he paid? Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and as we've gone through this study of First and Second Samuel, Lord, there is so much that you have highlighted so that we can walk more worthy day by day, learning from the mistakes of the past. Lord, I pray today that we see the heart of David here, that he was tempted and he fell into temptation, but he understood quickly that he had messed up, that he had sinned, and he came to you and he asked for forgiveness. Lord, I pray today that you would just knock on the hearts of those that are listening, Lord, those that have sin in their life, Lord, that they will come to you today, that they will quickly realize that sin and they will turn it over to you. They will repent of it. They will turn from it. Lord, there's one listening that is a Christian, but there is some sin in their life that they need to deal with. And Lord, I pray today that they will just listen and they'll allow your atonement to come over that. Lord, they'll give that back to you. They'll lay it at your feet and they'll turn from it. Lord, I pray for the one that doesn't know you. If there's one listening today that doesn't know you as Lord of their life, Lord, I pray today that they would admit they're a sinner, Lord, that they would realize that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and that we need a Savior, Lord. They would admit that. And Lord, they would believe on your finished work on the cross, Lord, that you did pay the right atonement. You paid the price so they don't have to. And Lord, they would believe on that. And Lord, they would confess with their mouth that you are Lord and they would repent from their sins. They will turn from their ways and they'll chase after you. Lord, we thank you for all the many blessings you give us. Lord, we thank you 
the blessings you do for this ministry. Lord, it's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.